So as we mentioned a second ago, today is uh, Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And so now what? You know, the Palm Sunday story in the scripture, it on the surface looks like a very typical gospel story. Jesus parades with a crowd into Jerusalem. But really, it's a weird story. It looks typical, but it's weird because they're treating him like he's going to be a king. And yet we know that that's not what happens. It looks like a coronation, but the week ends with crucifixion. So most of my life, I've struggled with the now what of Palm Sunday. This happened, but it, it, it doesn't turn out the way that you think it's going to turn out. So how do we apply this story to our lives? And you can see in your listening guide, this is where I want to start. And this is actually where I want us to end. If you want to pull out a Bible and turn to John chapter 12 and write a few things down. Here's what we learned from Palm's story. This unusual king has unusually high expectations for his citizens. This unusual king has unusually high expectations for his citizens. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. You see in your listening guide, a few things I think will help us to see just how unusual of a king Jesus was. It says that there were many people in Jerusalem because of the feast. The feast that it's talking about is the Passover. It was an annual holiday that the Israelites celebrated every single year to remember how God had rescued their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. They would come to Jerusalem. Every person who was able-bodied, an Israelite, was expected to be in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover holiday. So the population of Jerusalem would swell during the Passover celebration. Now, Jerusalem is the economic, political, and spiritual capital of Israel. As I mentioned, everyone was trying to get there. 
And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this day, over 1900 years ago, the crowd is lining the streets and they are shouting Hosanna, which was an exclamation of praise, meaning God is saving us. It comes from Psalm 118, where it says Hosanna, which in that context is a prayer. God, will you save us? But the very next verse in Psalm 118 is what we read here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And over time, those two verses were jammed together to mean one thing. Hosanna. God, save us. Will you save us? Yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is saving us through the one that he has sent. So over time, they came together. So Hosanna meant God is saving us through this person that he has sent. And it says that they picked up palm branches, which was a common gesture to welcome beloved leaders and victorious leaders back into the city. If there was a conquering general, when the general would come back with the army, The citizens would go out and line the street outside of the gates and they would pick up whatever was around and wave it there, whether it would be flowers or in this case, case, palm branches as as a gesture of thanks and celebration for this victory. So the children and the adults are picking up palm branches and waving them as Jesus is coming in. And it says that the crowd is huge welcoming Jesus. The reason it was huge, it says, is because Many people had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus and he died. Jesus waited a few days, then went to Lazarus's funeral. But instead of just mourning, you remember that Jesus said, roll away the stone. And then he says to Lazarus, come out of the grave. And Lazarus does. The eyewitnesses are blown away and they do what we would do in that situation. They tell a lot of people. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, these eyewitnesses are there, plus everyone that they told, plus everyone that heard welcoming Jesus into the city. But we see that not everyone is happy about this. It says that the Pharisees are frustrated and they're frustrated with one another. And they say that everybody is going out to worship Jesus and see Jesus. See, the Pharisees were a religious political group in first century Israel, and they believed all along the way that Jesus was doing more harm than good. That his teaching was actually harmful, even though he may have been saying true things, that he himself was harmful to Israel's cause. And so all along the way through the Gospels, the Pharisees are trying to suppress and squash out Jesus' ministry. But here they get to the last week of Jesus' life. They don't know it's his last week, and they're frustrated. They're exasperated because they've not been able to quiet him down. And in fact, it seems that his audience is growing. Again, on the surface... Seems like a very normal Jesus story, but we know it's not because what these people are expecting is that Jesus will go into Jerusalem and immediately become king. Now, there is no king of Israel at this time because their king was living in Rome, Caesar. Rome ruled the world at the time and Israel was no different. So Israel didn't have a king of their own and this deeply frustrated them. And so they were always looking for a king from the tribe of Judah that they could call their own. So what we're seeing along the side of the road that day is essentially what we do when we vote for elected officials. They're affirming this campaign, Jesus's campaign to be king. They're affirming it and they're assuming that they're gonna be blessed because of it. That's why we vote. We pick a leader 
We affirm that leader by a vote, and then we hope to be blessed. We hope our nation is blessed. We hope our state is blessed. We hope our city is blessed. We hope our neighborhood is blessed. Our family is blessed, and we are blessed. And that's exactly what they're thinking. There is no king. Jesus is apparently making a bid for the king, kingship, because it says that he comes on a young donkey, which is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet Zechariah from hundreds of years ago. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Most kings would come on a very powerful horse to show their authority. But Jesus doesn't. He fulfills Zechariah's word. He comes on a humble donkey. So they expect him to, to go in and be king, to throw the Roman Empire out and restore Israel like in the days of their ancestors. And yet Jesus does not do that. So they affirm his apparent campaign to be king, but it, it doesn't end up being what they expected That's why we see them swinging wildly back and forth. The last week of Jesus' life in the Gospels, the crowd becomes a character itself. And the crowd on Palm Sunday is supportive of Jesus. But by the end of the week, that same crowd that's saying crown him is saying crucify him. It's because they didn't understand that he is a king, but he's an unusual king. And this unusual king has very high expectations for us his citizens. We read about those expectations in the next story. You see in your listening guide, there are three things that I want you to remember when you leave today. This is the now what of Palm Sunday. The first one is love your eternal life. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, what does Jesus mean when he says whoever hates his life? Are we to hate our lives? Is that the same as hating ourselves? It seems to go against what Jesus told us in another place when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He tells us to love ourselves and then to love our neighbors at the same standard that we love ourselves. And as the standard is assumed is, is very high. So now he's telling us to hate our life. I, the key to understanding that is the phrase in this world. Whoever hates his life in this world. So understanding the inverse is, is really helpful here. If we're not supposed to love our life in this world and instead hate it, we are to love our eternal life. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, if you follow Jesus, you will live forever. Your life will never come to an end. There's a momentary pause here when you die, but your life doesn't end keeps on enduring. Your life is much bigger than here and now. You have eternal life. And Jesus says we should hate this life because we love our eternal life. What does it mean to love our eternal life? What does it mean to love anything? When you love something, you protect it. If you love your family, you try to protect your family. If you love your, I don't know, your television, you try to protect your television. You make sure your cat doesn't crawl up behind it or your kids crawl up behind it and push it over, or throw things at it, throw rocks at it. I don't know how kids get rocks in the house, but they do. Right? If you love something, you protect it. 
We should protect our eternal life, not because it's at risk of being lost, because Jesus is the one who holds it and it's secure in its hand, but harm can be done to it. I mean, he's very clear that what we do in this life affects our eternal life. Are there things about the way that you live right now that are harming your eternal life? That are stealing from your eternal life? Are you giving yourself things now that are actually stealing from yourself later? If you love something, you protect it. If you love something, you invest in it. So dating is not cheap. It's expensive. You can't go on your first date after having met one another, been introduced to one another. Maybe you found each other online and say, let's meet at McDonald's. Say, whatever you want from the dollar menu, go for it. (laughs) Pull out a wad of ones. She's going to be impressed by that. No, you don't do that on a first date. Dating is expensive. Then it gets even more expensive when you break out the L word. You love one another. Once you say that, you can't cheap out. When you love something, you invest in it. And when we love our eternal life, we invest in it. That's why giving to God's house at church makes, makes sense. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Putting money in the offering, giving online every month, it makes no sense if you don't love your eternal life because why on earth would you take from what is yours and give to something else? if that investment doesn't pay off later. That's why giving to the poor makes sense. Again, it would not feel right to withhold from yourself to give to someone else unless it was a good investment later. Because the truth is, eternal investments are the only good investments. Any investment you make in your life right now is eventually a bad investment because you're going to die and you can't take it with you. Eventually, that investment you make in your life right now will yield no return. But an internal investment will last forever, will grow forever. It just may not look like it in the moment. But if you love something, you invest in it. You love your eternal life, you'll invest in your eternal life. If you love something, you think about it. We live in Cyprus I know that feels like we might as well live in Austin for some of you because you can't go outside of the loop. If you go outside of the loop, you get shocked. So I apologize <laughs> for how you got shocked on your way to church today. But we live way out in the suburbs and, and consistently on my way home from work, I get stuck on, on 290 in, in traffic. And, and sometimes it's fine and it's normal and other times it's just totally gridlock. And anytime I bump into that gridlock, I immediately think of Amanda because I, I think about what her day has been like has it been long? How have the kids behaved? This is going to be another 45 minutes, an hour when I should have been home. I think about what she has planned. I think about what we have planned for dinner and how this traffic is, is going to affect all that. See, there is no relationship between being stuck in traffic and my wife, except for that I love my wife. And when this happens, I think about her. There's not much of a connection between what you do right now and eternal life, it, unless you love your eternal life. And you think about your eternal life. Everything that we do, big, small, spiritual, not spiritual, everything we do, we should be thinking about our life eternally. We should be thinking about our life beyond this life here and now in front of us. That there isn't anything that should not bring that to mind. 
when we love it. And when you love something, you change for it. I've told you many times that I grew up in Southwest Missouri. I talk about it all the time. I try to bring it up every single week. Sometimes I give it a hard time because it deserves it. But I love Missouri. It was a great place to grow up. It it, it is still a great place to live. And when I go home, it feels like home. And I remember what I was like when nobody cared what I was like, you know, before adult responsibilities and all of those things. And I really enjoy going home. But I don't ever think about what my life would be like had I not moved to Houston because I moved for love. This is where Amanda grew up. This is where her family lives. And so I didn't think about it. I mean, I'd tell you I prayed about it, but uh, that's just to sound spiritual. (laughs) Because when you're in love, of course you're gonna change for the person that you love. Changing an address is not that big of a deal. You remember what Jesus said? He said, the highest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So when Jesus tells us what to do, when he shows us his unusually high expectations of us, they may be difficult to do, but it should not be a hard decision to make because we're supposed to love him. And of course you change for the people that you love. Our unusual king expects us to love our eternal life, not just the life that we have right here, right now. The second thing that I want you to remember, the now what of Palm Sunday, we serve Jesus by following Jesus. We serve Jesus by following Jesus. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now, a typical king would have servants, of course. Those servants are employees. Those servants are faithful to the degree that they get paid or they are afraid. That was a typical servant of a typical king. Jesus is a king, but he's an unusual king. So he says to his servants, us, you want to serve me? Then you follow me. Wherever I go, you go. Wherever I am, that's where you are. And that's what we see in his original 12 disciples. Wherever he went, they went all through the gospels and the last week of his life, we see this. The last week, Jesus would start his day in Bethany. That's where he would spend the night, which was a little village outside of Jerusalem. And every morning he would come into Jerusalem. He would spend the day in Jerusalem. And then in the evening, he would go back out to Bethany. Then in the morning, back to Jerusalem, back out to Bethany all week long. And his disciples are following him back and forth, back and forth as he's ministering to people. During the day in Jerusalem, he would spend it in the temple, teaching in the temple. There were lots of teachers around the edges of the temple. Jesus would go and become one of those teachers. He would begin to teach. A crowd would gather. His disciples are there with him, listening to his teaching, remembering his his teaching. That's why we have it in the gospels, because they heard it and they remembered it and they wrote it down. On Thursday night, he hosted a meal for his disciples. We call it the Last Supper. Only Jesus knew that it would actually be the Last Supper. At the beginning of that meal, you remember he had them take off their shoes and he washed their feet. They were with him. After the meal was over, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right outside the gates of Jerusalem. And there Jesus prayed in agony. His disciples were with him. Peter, James, and John, they were close. The rest of the 12, a little bit further away, watching and listening to Jesus pray in agony. Then they watched as the mob came with lanterns, weapons and torches. They arrested Jesus. 
most of the disciples fled. A couple stayed close enough to follow him to his next stop, which was his first trial. John and Peter were with him there, but that's where Peter, remember, pretended that he didn't know Jesus. Jesus was tried by a religious court, then he was tried in a Roman court, then he was tried in a local court, then he was retried in a Roman court. Eventually, he was sentenced to death. They strapped his cross to him, and he took it out to Golgotha, a hill outside of Jerusalem that was in the shape of a skull. Only one of his disciples was there with him when he died. That was John, who wrote the Gospel of John. Now, we weren't there that first Holy Week to follow him to those specific addresses, but he will lead us to similar places. Because just like he was going from Bethany to Jerusalem, Bethany to Jerusalem, Bethany to Jerusalem to minister to people, he's ministering to people now. Jesus himself is ministering to your neighbors. He is at work in the life of your coworkers. He is moving invisibly in the life of your family. He is at work. And often he's going to invite you into that work for you to speak for him, to you to, for you to be his voice in that moment, for you to be a, a hug of warmth or an offer of charity and kindness. He's ministering to people and you're gonna follow him into that ministry. We're gonna follow him as he teaches us. We're gonna listen to what he says. We're gonna remember what he says. We're gonna be able to write down the things that he says and we're gonna be changed by the things that he says. We'll follow him in his teaching. We're gonna follow him as he cleans us, just as he washed the feet of the disciples before they ate, he, he cleans us. That's why it's important to confess our sins first to him and then to other people because it says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to wash more than our feet today. And we'll follow him if that's what he wants. We'll follow him to private places of devotion like the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll wake up earlier than the rest of the house and find a corner and open up the scripture and we'll read and we'll listen and we'll pray. Before you go to bed, you'll find a quiet space, a private place of secret devotion. Your garden of Gethsemane, following Jesus there. We may have to follow him in moments where we have to stand in public and say, we do know him and we're not ashamed of him. Maybe one day we'll be required to do that because of the political climate around us or the religious climate around us, that it may be a tough thing to stand up and say, yes, I am a Jesus follower. Maybe it's something a little bit more normal and natural that a conversation at work starts to turn racist. And you as a follower of Jesus say, no, 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 no. That's not happening while I'm here. So two choices, we can change the conversation or I'm just gonna have to go. We stand for Jesus in moments like that, even though it might mean ridicule, even though it might mean criticism. We're going to follow him in those moments, and we may have to follow him to our own Golgotha, place of suffering. The crowd was so huge that day that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem because, as I mentioned, Lazarus had been raised from the dead, and people were hearing about it. Now, you would think that if you were an eyewitness to somebody be ra being raised from the dead, that you would say, I'll follow this person anywhere and everywhere. I mean, that guy was dead. 
not dead anymore. I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but that seems like, yeah, what do you, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. If you heard that story from an eyewitness who was actually there, you think that that would be enough. But as we know, the crowds that are affirming him today are shouting crucify on Friday. So it wasn't enough because here's the thing. Lots of people are willing to follow Jesus into the wonder. Few are willing to follow him into the wounding. Everybody signs up for the miracles. You don't have to have great faith to say I'm with Jesus in the miracles, but he will, if you follow long enough, lead you to Golgotha. And you're gonna be wounded. You're gonna be wounded by people. You're gonna be wounded by life. But if we are servants of this unusual king, we're gonna follow him even then because that's the kind of service he wants. Finally, we're gonna find our honor by serving Jesus. If anyone serves me, must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now the beginning of this passage, it says these Greeks, they wanted to see Jesus. As I mentioned Jerusalem was a major metropolitan city and the Passover holiday was legendary. So it would not be unusual that people who were not Israelites would come to watch this holiday. And these Greeks, for some reason, are interested in Jesus and they want an audience with him. And and look how Philip and Andrew responds. Philip is the one who first learns about it. He goes and grabs Andrew, who I guess maybe he thought was a little bit closer to Jesus than he was, or maybe he just wanted a little bit of support. You know, if two of us go and ask Jesus to see these guys, then, then maybe he will. But they treat these Greeks with some reverence, some honor, which we all want. Everybody wants to be honored. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to write your own bio. I don't mean like a biography. I mean like a little paragraph. I was in my mid-20s the first time that somebody asked me for my bio. I was speaking at a conference and they wanted to put it in some publicity so that people would come to the conference. You know, I was like way down on the list of speakers, but they asked for a headshot. And I'm like, what? I'm not in Hollywood, you know. Uh, they asked for a headshot and they asked for my bio. Well, I could get a picture, you know. This is like selfie pre iPhone days, but I didn't have a bio. I don't have a word document somewhere hidden that contained it. And so I started to write a bio, but it was really struggling because, you know, I'm a minister and ministers are supposed to be humble, but you want your bio to be impressive. You know how hard it is to be humble and impressive at the same time. That's an impossible target to hit. And so if you ever had to write your own bio, you know how hard it is to, to, to talk about yourself in a way that seems appealing without putting off. And I, at the time, had not really accomplished anything in my life. So that's especially hard to sound impressive if you're not impressive, you know? But we all know what that's like to try to position ourselves to get honor, to get recognition without maybe being too obvious about it. We just, we just angle our life a little bit, right? We all want honor and we have two options to get it. Number one, we can go and look for it. We can go and look for it. We can go and find it. That's what two disciples did. Remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. James and John asked for a blank check from Jesus. Hey, just tell us you're gonna say yes to what we're getting ready to ask. 
what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. James and John asked for a blank check. And what do they ask for? Honor. When you're king, we want to be on your right and we want to be on your left. All of us want honor. And like James and John, we can go and find it. We find it a little bit differently. We find it by planting stories of our success in conversations. We do it by carefully crafting our social media posts. We do it when somebody else tells a story of their success, we give a pause and then we tell a story of our success that's just a little bit better than their story. That's option number one, you can go and find it. Or number two, you can let honor find you. That's what Jesus tells us to do. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Billy Graham passed away a few weeks ago. I know a lot of you are young. And so Billy Graham's ministry may just be one story that you heard, but you should go and read his biography, not his bio, his biography, because really he lived a pretty impressive life. He preached the message of Jesus to more people in person than anyone who has ever lived. And I'm guessing will ever live. And when he died, America took a moment to reflect he was just a minister and they laid his body in state at the Capitol and dignitaries from all over the world came and paid their respects at his funeral they put it on national television I'm going to go out on a limb today and say nobody's doing that for me and probably not you when I die the world is not shutting down they're not going to televise my funeral and they're not going to televise your funeral either. Along the way in his reflection after he died, people would say, I mean, imagine what his reception in heaven was like. The first time that, you know, he saw Jesus and Jesus saw him in person and the saints that are there, just imagine what that was like. Which is really great news to us is none of us are going to be Billy Graham. The world is not going to take a moment when you die or when I die, but the honor that was available to him when he saw Jesus is available to regular people like us. Because Jesus says, if you serve him, the father will honor you. You don't have to be Billy Graham. Billy Graham had to be faithful with what it was that God asked him to do. And we got to be faithful with what God is asking us to do. And that honor is available. That's the now what of the Palm Sunday experience. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week ends with Resurrection Sunday. And I just want to plant a seed for next Sunday right now. Next week, we're going to talk about a a, a subject that I think is relevant to all of us in here and every person that you know. How do I know that Jesus was really raised from the dead? You ever wonder this faith in Jesus thing is built on a piece of paper or or there's a little bit more evidence there? You know, did I, is this just a lot of faith and a little bit of evidence? Or is there a lot of evidence that Jesus was really raised from the dead? That's what we're going to talk about next week. And I want to think you to be thinking about and praying about what that's going to mean for you and then what it's going to mean for somebody that you care about.